welcome to the Fracture Line, the official weekly news feed from the Chest Wall Injury Society, where we will listen to all the bottom line CWIS updates, shoutouts, fun facts, and weekly banner. I'm your host, Dr. Mark Crisco, and I'm joined always by Dr. Tom White, Dr. Adam Kay, and Sarah Ann Whitbeck. Welcome back to Fracture Line, everybody. We're really excited to have on Dr. Herb Phelan. Now, Herb, we've got to have a long conversation about you going to Ukraine. We're really excited to talk about that. Before we kind of delve into the episode here, give the listeners a little little background about yourself, where you are, who you are, what you're practicing right now. So I'm at LSU New Orleans. I've been back here for two years. I actually did my residency here back in the day at uh, Old Charity Hospital and then left to go do my trauma fellowship at a big hospital in Dallas called Parkland, where the lay folks out there, uh, it's kind of the charity of Dallas, and then stayed there after I was done uh, until 2020 when Dr. Jeff Carter recruited me to come back here uh, and work with him at UMC. So through that time I did trauma and burns, and then my 50th birthday present to myself was to quit taking trauma call and go to just burns only. So uh, since for the last four years now, that's uh, I've, my practice has been exclusively burn care. So uh, I do that as uh, for the clinical uh, part of my job, and then for the um, scientific part of my job, I'm actually the vice chair for surgical research uh, for the LSU Department of Surgery. And uh, on the side, I've actually got a burgeoning uh, fiction writing career. It's going real well. In fact, sometime during this uh, broadcast, I'll probably pass 5,000 of my uh, copies sold of my latest book and uh, that got released in April. So that's turning out to hopefully wind up being my post-retirement gig that uh, I do on the side. But, uh, but between that and trying to get sleep and you know, keep my wife from running off with the pool boy, that pretty much takes up all of my time. Well, I think well, 5,004 books is probably, or you, or you could give us a cup. I mean, yeah, I mean, we're them. making you famous essentially by putting you on fracture lines. Gratuity is so, you know, not a problem here. It doesn't sound like, huh? <laughs> Tell us one fact about Dr. Greifenstein that we wouldn't likely know about him. Just give us one thing. I, uh, yeah, I was actually talking to somebody right before we came on. Dr. Griffinstein, I love him to death, but you know, he, you don't think of him as being on People's Sexiest Men Alive uh, list, Whoa. but he was he was being swooned over by some of our nurses not too long ago, which really caught me by surprise. And then, oh, he was oh, in college, man, I, an erotic interpretive dance major. No, I'm making that last one up. That, that, that's sure. BS. But the, but the part of, three, of the nurses. Which of the two out of three is not real? Yeah, which one's yeah. a lie? Exactly. But, but in all seriousness, oh, the, great, the nurses, yeah, they swoon over Dr. Grimstein in the operating room. And I got to say, <laughs> I did not see that one coming. You knew him before he was the sex symbol. <laughs> Inter- international <laughs> sex symbol, that's right. right. Exactly right. We've only, we've only known him as, a, as an international sex well, symbol. So it's kind of well, refreshing let, to hear that he would. Let's hear about Ukraine. Yeah, happy to do it. Uh, back around March, I think it was. Uh, the Ukrainian Minister of Health reached out to uh, a muckety-muck at the ABA saying, we really need help, uh, particularly with burn care, uh, trauma as well, but really primarily for burn care. And uh, so Dr. Steve Wolf's the guy's name. He, like I say, is president two, three years ago. So uh, he reached out to a handful of us to see if we would be interested in going over there and doing burn, but in that environment, it really winds up mostly being burn and trauma care. And he wanted, he was specifically looking for folks with enough gray hair that uh, it kind of, you're taken seriously when you walk through the door, as well as somebody who's comfortable, like I said, in both spheres of trauma and burn care. So um, a handful of us have volunteered. Uh, my turn to go was in June, it went for actually what wound up being 18 days. And uh, I will have to kind of preface the rest of this by saying the Ukrainian military has asked us to not be. Uh, 
real specific about a lot of things, like in terms of numbers and uh, you know other things, you know numbers of casualties that we're seeing and other stuff. So, I, but I, I can still kind of speak in generalities. But what it amounted to is that um, we were embedded with the on our deployment. With, there were four of us who went over: myself, a vascular surgeon, uh, a uh, an orthopedic trauma surgeon, and a former uh, military nurse who worked at Longstuhl, Germany, and uh, the. All of us kind of divided and conquered between these the three hospitals there in the town where, where we're at. And uh, the burn patients that we were taking care of, particularly at the burn center, the hospital that had the burn center, it was it was everything I thought it was going to wind up being, I mean, for good and for bad. It, it's 1970s uh, uh, architecture. You know, it's, everything is very Soviet-appearing uh, all over that part of the country, and every building looked like a hollowed-out cinder block. The, uh, the facilities were pretty meager, uh, very, um, again, very 1970s. It actually was good having practiced at Charity Hospital, the uh, old New Orleans uh, trauma center, which the physical plant was built in 1939 with old-fashioned wards, you know, 10 patients to a ward and stuff. Uh, they, they did have rooms, but there were four patients to a room just and crammed in so tight that uh, the, the beds all touched. And then even beyond that, because the nursing was stretched so thin, uh, everybody was allowed to have one family member to stay to like help feed them, help get them up and about. So that's eight people basically crammed into each of these small rooms. And uh, what we did, we flew into Poland, uh, our, our deployment of four actually felt kind of weird because I was the only uh, civilian. The other three were all former military. And we met up there with, uh, they did give us a handler, uh, actually three former special forces guys who contract with the NGO. Uh, that we were with called uh, the General Surgical Medical Support Group, and they're the ones who provided security, just kind of helped facilitate getting across the border. Uh, we we actually did wind up having uh, a need for not, uh, we, they told us when we got there, they were like, look, we're not really worried that you guys are going to get shot or bombed or something. Their bigger worry was getting grabbed. They said, you know, English speakers walking around in a place where you know, there's about, they said about 8% of the population where we were at is, is sympathetic to the Russians. And these guys were very into counterterrorism and all that kind of stuff. So we had gone, uh, we got dropped at, uh, uh, dropped off a little ways from the house where we were staying. And, you know, the three of us, the doctors were clueless. We're just jibber jabbering. And the special forces guy who was with us was kind of quiet while we were walking along. And then he told us, hey, do me a favor, go up and around that corner and just wait for me up there. And we're like, okay, whatever. So we get up there. And we wait for him for seven, eight minutes, and the guy's name was Sebastian, was the, the one who's working with us. And he catches up to us, and he's like, okay, and he shows us a phone. He's like, if y'all see this guy again, you need to tell me about it. I was like, uh, okay, what's that? He goes, well, we picked up a tail just in the time of getting dropped and this walking back to the house. And he said he dropped, he hung back and actually confronted the guy and you know, said he, he knew I, I took his picture, told him to fuck off, and you know, the guy left. But in the meantime, you know, th that's the kind of stuff that they're more worried about than shelling or anything like that where we were at. And so we said, you know, just stagger your routine, get picked up and dropped off in different places. Uh, don't have a routine that's just be unpredictable. And then we did uh, communication checks. Uh, and when we left, anytime we left the house, it was, you know, failing going to the hospital, the burn hospital. And then at lunchtime, we tried to check in. And then when we were coming home, so that way at any given time, uh, you knew where people were at. And then uh, as far as the work itself, uh, it was really kind of, it, it was very, very different from what I was expecting. And truthfully, I hate to say this, but I kind of expected them to be a little further along medically in terms of their skill set and some of their resources. I mean, it really was very 1970s approach to burn care. Uh, the There just is no such thing as infection control. 
They, there was in the room where we do wound care, there was a green puddle of water that sat in the corner for about 48 hours. I was like, you know, I think somebody might need to run a mop over that or something. And they're like, oh, yes, yes, we get to that. We get to that. But, uh, you know, the, the, the nurses get four gloves a day and um, they're, they're rationing gloves. And so it's really more about protecting the nurses than it is about the patients. And they bring patients to the operating room literally wearing street clothes, like if you're going to operate on a leg. They just roll the pants up to the knee and keep them in the t-shirt because they don't have scrubs or anything to go giving them. If you go, if you remove it, you got a naked patient, you know, if they throw their clothes away now. So then they're worried about trying to find clothes. So, uh, yeah, the, the, the infection control problems were far, far worse than, uh, than I had thought that they were going to be. And then the other thing really that wound up being a big part of what I was doing, the, the, the way casualties would get to us is the, the city of Dnipro in the east is kind of the, the gathering area for most wounded for, you know, the, obviously in East Ukraine is where it's the worst right now, has been for a while, particularly in June. In June, it was very, very busy. And uh, while they were fighting for the Donbass region and particularly for the city of Severodonetsk, was the, that battle was raging at the time that we were there. Well, there, you can't fly, you can't do any medevac through the air because anything in the air is considered a combatant. So all the, it, I hate to say this, but if you get wounded badly at the front, you just die. You know, if you've got a hemorrhagic injury that you can't get a tourniquet on, those folks are just dying in the field. And then for, uh, if you were able to extricate people from the front, uh, we saw a ton of blast injuries uh, because the Russians had learned by uh, June, they'd figured out that they couldn't really go toe-to-toe with the Ukrainians. So what they had done is pulled back and were just pounding them with cruise missiles and with, and particularly with artillery. Now that has changed since that time, but, it, but at, the, at the time that we were there, that was what, why we were seeing a ton of blast injuries. And so they get, get them to Dnipro where they then make it onto a train and the train would bring them to us where, and they would just disgorge all these patients. And uh, so the, the ratio of, of casualties for civilians to military is probably two to one uh, because again, they were getting shelled, you know, houses were uh, getting bombed by the Russians. It was, uh, there, there really is no, at least that I saw, uh, no attempt to try and discriminate between, you know, civilian and military targets. And then uh, the military hospital uh, we had spent some time at, but the, what I didn't realize prior to going is, you know, when you talk about the war starting in 2022, they'll correct you, they'll say, no, 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 the, the war started in 2014 when the Russians annexed Crimea. And so the trauma, the military trauma guys have actually been at this for a while, and they, they're, they're better from a technical standpoint than I had expected them to be. Uh, and frankly, the, at the military hospital where we were at, they, they could kind of hold their own. But the, at the hospital where I was at, where it was civilian-based at the burn unit, uh, they, they don't do burns at the military hospital. So any, any, uh, everything burned comes to the hospital where I was at, or they overflowed at that hospital. And uh, training there is very different. They do, surgeons there do three years of uh, medical school, three years of residency, and then you're out. And it's like, I want to be a plastic surgeon. Okay, you go looking for plastic surgery jobs. Or I want to be a burn surgeon, you look for burn jobs. And the problem that we wound up having was, I, I mean, that's just not a lot of operating, particularly the new grads had COVID, you know, interrupting their training. And the, the hospital where I was at had nine burn surgeons, three late career, three mid career, and three fairly fresh out and I operated a good bit with the three young ones who they were asking hey will you do this case with me yeah sure happy to and their technical skills were I wasn't even always teaching burn care there were times I was just teaching basic surgery this is how you tie a knot on a blood vessel kind of stuff uh, you know it, it it kind of took me aback 
uh, as to how much of that just, I mean, I'm talking basic surgical stuff I was teaching. Um, the the mid-career people were, uh, two. there were three of them there, and two of them were really good. Uh, I did a couple of cases with them, and they, they we you know, scrubbed together just kind of while we're getting to know each other, and they're pretty slick, particularly with given the limitations of resources they have. They, they don't have much of the burn equipment we use. They just use scalpels for everything. And one guy skinned an eyelid using a ten blade, which is that's pretty cool. You know, the, the fact that he could do that successfully, and then also interestingly enough, the three older burn surgeons in this group. Uh, when I say older, the youngest of them was probably 62, 63, and uh, ranged up to the upper 60s. And they were very entrenched in their ways. They had no interest. They, they weren't rude, but they had no interest in what I had to say. They had no interest in. You know, and they, they had nothing wrong. They saw nothing wrong with the way that they were practicing, and uh, you know, okay, that I'm I'm not going to be a hard ass to anybody. You know, that I, I was there to help was my attitude, and you know, if you if you want that help, great. If not, uh, that's cool too. But the the three mid career guys and the three young guys, the three mid career guys, most of the interactions were based around kind of how the rest of the world does burn care, what the standard of care is is represented in America. And whereas with the three junior people, it was really just about teaching the basics of surgery. So uh, that was on the surgical side and then also on the intensive care unit side, very, very limited resources. And with uh, intensivists who, uh, by the way, they, they don't call them um, the ICU docs there. They call them reanimationists. And they call the burn surgeons uh, combustologists. <laughs> so I said I was going to come home and get that over my stenciled on my white coat. Combustologist who does reanimation. I was like, so uh, so anyway, going and meeting their reanimationists, uh, same kind of a thing. They just didn't really have a lot of comfort with burns and uh, you know just learning the the basics of how to go trying to uh, you know resuscitate a burn injury and. Uh, we didn't really have to do too many resuscitations because by, by nature of how it worked with them getting brought to us on these trains, almost always the patients were greater than 24 hours out from injury. So, you know, we, we were getting a lot of people with tourniquets on limbs. We were getting a lot of people who, you know, were 48 hours out from a 20, 30% burn. But, uh, but we did have two people who presented pretty quickly after with a big burn who actually were burned in the city where we were at. But most of what we were getting was 24 hours out from injury. So. Uh, it, it was uh, a lot of work to be done. They generally, like I said, the, sur the surgeons, mid-career and younger, were very open to having us there. Some of the other folks really took some convincing that, hey, there might be a better way of doing this. But uh, at the end of 18 days when we came out, when I came out and my partner, Dr. Carter, replaced me, uh, I, they said, hey, if you want to come back, we'd, we'd love to have you. So I'm, uh, I did have to use vacation to go. So, by the, and, and it's funny, my, my wife and I were originally for that two weeks supposed to go to Alaska. And uh, when, because when the university told us, fine, you can do it, but you gotta take vacation for it. I, I've been laughing that, I, I was like, man, this is gonna be a hard sell. You know, talking to, trying to talk the missus into letting me go to Ukraine for two weeks. But I, I said, hey, can I go to Ukraine for two weeks? She's like, shit, go for three. Like, okay, well, that was a lot easier than I thought. And then she started joking about having, our 18-year-old pool boy, Julio, spend the night at the house just in case she got nervous. I was like, well, okay, just don't let him wear my clothes. But, uh, but anyway, she, all, I know, all I know is her Spanish has gotten a lot better in the last couple of months. But hey, it was weird. I, I, I don't know what to make of that. But in all seriousness, though, she, she said that she's going to, uh, she was fine with letting me go the last time. But when I started making noises about going back and... Um, she uh, said, well, do you have to decide right now? And I said, no. And she really wants to have 
uh, uh, us do a vacation next, and which means next time I accrue two weeks, we'll be with her. So it, it's probably going to be spring by the time I have enough vacation to go back. And you know, things are just so weird there right now, and that situation is changing so fast. Uh, I, 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 don't, I don't know if there will be a need, and one of the other things they're talking about now, having more administrative changes, meaning that you know, working at a systems level rather than one-on-one -on -one in the operating room. Well, I admire you and your your effort and your uh, passion for that thing. I, it's it's very commendable. Thank you for sharing well, that with I us today. That. What are you going to change? What what do you think you can do differently, if anything? What are your goals for the next uh, for the next deployment, if you will? Really, the big thing that we learned was in the earth. The, so like I said, I was the second deployment for two weeks, and the first guy who went out, uh, we kind of had the impression a guy who went before me named Bill Hickerson from Memphis. And we kind of had been given the impression they were a little further along than we thought. And Bill brought, um, we use in burn care now a lot of, we call them dermal substitutes. These are uh, generally uh, artificial dressings that stimulate the ingrowth of a more collagen-rich uh, uh, wound bed than just if you did, wet, say, wet to dries or just vac it. So these things are real expensive, though. And we thought, oh, this will be great. We'll show them what dermal substitutes are like. And, but they're insanely expensive, and uh, because you have everything you take there, it has to be in a, in one of your uh, suitcases. You know, they, they, you really have to be strategic about how much uh, about what you pack. And Bill brought with him about a total of a half million dollars of dermal substitutes that he had donated from some various vendors. Of I mean, just top of the line, you know, cutting edge dermal substitutes. And he walked in and took one look around. You know, this hospital with literally flies on the wall in the operating room and green puddles in the corner of the hydrotherapy area, the wound care area, and it was like, I, we can't use any of this. I mean, they, the, the downside to them is not only their cost, but they get infected very easily. And so uh, they're still sitting at the, at the house that we use down there. We're trying to figure out a way to get them back because Amazon's not delivering in Ukraine. So literally anything that you take in or take out, has you have to get across the border, either in a backpack or something like that. So in terms of what I would change, though, is uh, my my when I saw how many things there were to work on on the first go around uh, I, I sat down with our team we would debrief all like I said there was a vascular surgeon an orthopedic surgeon every night when we had dinner with our special forces handlers we talked about okay kind of what how did the day go and what did we need to work on the following day in terms of what hospitals we would wind up going to and uh, what I told them my thing was for that first two weeks was since there's a million things to work on I was going to pick two things that I thought were achievable and really work on that before I went. So the first thing that I went on was uh, trying to increase the throughput of patients. They uh, keep patients in the hospital much, much longer than we do here uh, out of fears of infection at home. And I told them, I was like, you know, I promise you there is nothing at their apartment or wherever they're going to be staying that's worse than this room with eight people and open wounds, you know, sitting there. So trying to get the notion across them of get people grafted, dealt with, amputated, whatever, the wound closed and get them home. And then I said, do you have the ability to bring people back to check on them as an outpatient? They said, yeah, we could do that. So trying to get that paradigm because it would shrink the number of patients in the hospital, you know, because that's the thing with those trains coming in, if there's no back door, you know, they just build up and build up and build up. So working on throughput was the, the big thing I worked on. And the other was the importance of nutrition. Uh, they have patients literally with Trade the, the the food isn't even really food. It's like I'd say it's like Oliver Twist or something. It's like gruel almost. They bring these patients, but if their arms are bandaged, they still just give them, and the family has to feed them. 
or if the family there's nobody to feed them they have to try to feed themselves where if both of their arms are bandaged and they can't hold there's no physical therapy I mean they just get the four bites you know and then they just get tired of eating and everybody there's dropping weight and all this other stuff so getting aggressive about placing nasal feeding tubes and using pumps or syringes to go ahead and feed them was the other thing that I really worked on while I was there so depending on how well that went across that came across then my next goal if they if they had incorporated that and it had stuck uh, was to then start working on some of these infection control issues and just making them realize how big of a deal this was. That you know, it's it, I don't care how limited your resources, you can wash your hands after you touch a patient. You know, that that's the thing is they would literally just go bed to bed. There's no foam on the wall. You know, the the, the pumps that we use to the, to dispense hand sanitizer at, at, at the wall, there are none of those. But th- I mean, there's sinks around, and so you know, the the idea of not just literally going from bed to bed, you know, changing your scrubs every day, changing your white, like we don't even wear white coats uh, here at the at the LSU Burn Center. We, you know, we have signs everywhere because, again, you know, these people who, yeah, they change their scrubs all the time, but if you're wearing the same dirty white coat, you're, you're not accomplishing anything. Guys, let's move on. Sarah Ann. Um, just an FYI, Tuesday, August 9th is CWIS, uh birthday. Um, so as of August 9th, um, that is the six-year mark to when we officially filed as being um, an organization. As of Tuesday, August 9th, 2020, we are officially six years old. Happy birthday, CWIS. Um And we did cross the 700-member mark. Um, in our first six years, so yay, yay for us. This upcoming week, we have two very important educational activities. Please try to make it to at least one, if not both, because they're both going to be terrific, and um, you don't want to miss them. Um, So we have Journal Club um, on uh, Wednesday, August 10th. Um, at 2 p.m. Mountain Time, please make sure that you're you're around and available. It's going to be terrific. Um, we have Dr. Adam Nelson from University of Arizona down in Tucson who will be presenting some research that he and his team um, recently published. And then the very next day on Thursday, August 11th, we have... Um, one of our CWIS webinars on pediatric slipped rib by one of our colleagues at Phoenix Children Hospital, Dr. Lisa McMahon, and that is going to be terrific. So please make sure that you you find some time in your calendar to participate in one of those. Um, I think you'll you'll really be glad that you did. Um, as far as other things to make note of, our CWIS Day, which is basically just a bonanza of awesome. Um, has been confirmed for Wednesday, November 16th. It is 12 solid hours of CWIS goodness. So we'll be doing a couple different case reviews. Um, We'll be doing two different journal clubs. So there'll be kind of a morning and an afternoon. Um, We'll have two different ribinars. It it will literally be 12 solid hours of content and one long Zoom call. So you can pop in and out as you have time. Please block some time on your calendar. Um, we recognize that most people will not have more than, than a few fragments in the day because everybody is super busy, but, but the CWIS channel will be on and we would love to see, see everybody for at least a few minutes in their day and be able to say hello. So that is Wednesday, November 16th. Put it on your calendar. Um, there are a whole host of things that are coming between now and then, but we'll just start with those, Dr. Crisco. Thanks for the time to give that quick update. That's awesome. Hey guys, let's move on to the final stitch. 
Who wants to go first? I'll go first. Um, I'm just distressed by this whole uh, Brittany Griner affair in Russia, this nine-year sentence that she was delivered today for possession of a small amount of medicinal marijuana that wouldn't even be illegal in this country. And, and after the atrocities that we learned a little bit more about today from Dr. Phelan, I just I want to give just a big feed you to Russia. How's that? Oh, no. But that's what I'm <laughs> thinking about. That's what I'm thinking about. That's my final stitch. I've got, I've got two. I have to finish my my uh, my my uh, series, so I'll finish my series, and I have one more because uh, it's something very important happened on August second in Kansas, and I think we need to just uh, comment on it as well. Um, so my last child is Ava. Ava's four years old. Um, she is uh, uh, becoming a very um, verbose little girl. I can't understand half of what she says, but she has a lot to say, and um, she's just a just a really a. A really interesting kid. All of her siblings love her, and uh, it's a really nice thing to see. And uh, um, she's just a lot of fun. So um, she'll see. We'll see where she goes. She's going to pre-K starting uh, in a couple of weeks. So we'll go from there. And then finally, the, the one other thing I want to talk about is uh, August second, Kansas, um, a very very red state. Uh, Two thirds of the voters in Kansas voted no on the amendment. Now I don't know if anyone people are following this, but there was an amendment that was trying to be passed where we would allow the legislature to change the Kansas Constitution. Um, and we decided, no, we do not trust these people to do that. Because if they did, they would more or less completely ban abortion um, from, from conception. And so we were able to, um, two-thirds of a red state, and it was definitely a bipartisan um, vote, decided that they were not going to be able to give these people that That's permission. Awesome. My final stitch is uh, this week is my one-year anniversary of being uh, in attending at my current job. So I've, uh, I have one year of experience, and it's been an interesting one year. And I have to thank, <laughs> I have to thank, you know, CWIS for a lot of support uh, during that year because I've done a lot of <laughs> cases, and I had a lot of help along the way. So... Mine, I have two. One, the door has been installed, people. The door saga is over. I know, I know. Uh, Dr. Phelan, I have been waiting for a door to be installed for eight months, and it was, it's been rough. So I had a very exciting thing happen this week, and I'll have to give you a little bit of context to, to understand why it was so cool, but there is a book series when in the Utah Centennial when, when um, Utah turned 100 years old in 1996. As a state, they released, a, um, it's called the, the Utah Centennial County History Series. And so there are 29 books. Um, and every county has a, a book that talks about, you know, who found the county. I mean, founded the county and, and all of that and, and become obsessed with this book series. And they don't have it anymore. Um, I mean, it's not in print or anything. It was just this special edition thing. And so, but I decided a few months ago that I really, I, I saw this and decided I really wanted a set, my own set of all 29 counties. And my brother collects rare books and, and um, things like that. And so I mentioned it to him. I said, if you ever find this, you know, I, I really want one. So this past week, he surprised me. He found the entire set and uh, it, was, well, it was last weekend and was like, I found this whole set, original dust jackets, you know, all the hardbound, da 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 da, you know, and I was like, oh my gosh, that would be so phenomenal. But I have just spent this, you know, 
unglorious amount of money with this this backyard um, remodel. I, I just, you know, we'll, we'll get another one. And he called me two days ago to tell me that he'd bought it for me. Oh, that's so sweet. That is cool. Tell All us right, about cool. your book. Oh, uh, so I've actually got two. I'm uh, working on my third right now. I started uh, writing fiction in 2019. And it kind of started as a lark. And after I finished the first book, I thought it wasn't bad. And I showed it to a developmental editor who works for one of the big five. And uh, he made some recommendations. And after it was done, he said, I got to tell you, it's probably worth shopping this around. And I did and found a publisher who liked it. And next thing I know, lawyers and contracts were involved and stuff like that. And the shit got real in a hurry. And uh, the, the, that book was called The Cuts to Cure. did well, sold about 5,000 copies in those first 14 months. And I followed that one uh, with another one called The Bones of Amaret that came out in April. And like I said, sometime today is going to pass 5,000 copies sold. So I'm lining this up as my second career when I'm done. Uh, I, got, I, was always, I was an English major in college. I always loved to read. And I do a ton of scientific writing. I've got over 100 scientific publications and book chapters. But uh, this is my first foray into fiction. It turns out I really like it. Looks like I'm pretty good at it. Initially, I was worried this was going to be, you know, a big, you know, uh, thing that never made it past my circle of family and friends. But I'm developing a readership, and yeah, it looks like something that's going to wind up being a nice little side income when I retire here in a couple of years. That's so cool. So cool. Yeah.